So we are now live. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Shaykh Khanna, just bear with me and some double check. If anyone's viewing, inshallah ta'ala, right now, could you just let us know in the chat if everything is going smoothly with regards to the link? So we have 12 viewers right now, inshallah. Any of the brothers or sisters listening? Is the sound working on both sides, inshallah? Then uh, we'll be ready to start. Yes, Alhamdulillah, okay. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, wa salatu wa salam, ala nabiyyil kareem, wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Dear respected viewers, listeners, I'd just like to thank you all for attending and for benefiting. Uh, mashallah. Uh, I like the comments. One of the brothers is called Abu Ramesa. Mashallah. That's my name as well. Mashallah. Nice to see that name. Put that on there. Mashallah. Uh, I'd like to thank the brothers and sisters for attending uh, Roots Academy of Groups Conversations podcast. We're a podcast that are featured. We are featured on multiple platforms. Um, so do give us a shout. Do subscribe on the relevant platforms that we do have on audio, and you can listen to up to fourteen different, thirteen different conversations we've currently had, um, and uh, we're continuing to have during uh, and up to Ramadan, and then after Ramadan, inshallah ta'ala. So for the viewers, inshallah ta'ala, please do spread the word and spread the khair. And today we have uh, an incredible guest, someone that I've been listening to in many podcasts. Actually, I've, in fact, in fact, my gr- the great one of the greatest episodes of podcast episodes I've ever watched, ever, ever listened to, ever was um, Sheikh Abu Toba, uh, Abu Toba on uh, the Roots. Uh, sorry, on the Madam Luke's podcast, Mashallah. And uh, I really, really enjoyed that one. I actually watched it. I actually listened to it twice. It was that good. Um, so and I even posted it on social media, which is not something that I usually do. So yeah, definitely was an incredible podcast. It showed to me uh, at the time your your incredible spectrum of experiences that all fused together to create an incredible story. And I think that a lot of people will resonate with that and appreciate from all all walks of life and appreciate every every angle that you've chosen in your life. Alhamdulillah. So we've got a lot to discuss, inshallah, if Allah, if Allah wills, um, with some of the discussion points. Um, if that's okay with you, Sheikh Um But the first thing I'd like to start off introduction-wise is that, um, I mean, your your story is rather interesting, and for the for the benefit of the viewers, it'd be very very important to to sort of you know elaborate on how everything worked out the way it did work out um, from both your classical or sort of your secular-based studies and moving towards you know your classical-based studies and studying abroad and in a range of different countries. Inshallah, that's okay with you. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. You know, we sometimes when we look back on our history, we it looks like we planned a lot of things. But in actuality, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has been guiding us and taking us to where we needed to go and what was beneficial for us. And, uh, you know, I can't claim that I planned all of this. You know, this is the mercy of Allah upon me. I look at the qadr of Allah as kind of like you're on a stage and you don't know what anybody else is going to do on this stage, you know, and and you just know what you're supposed to do when, when your time comes, inshallah ta'ala. And that's even that, it's just general. So my experience from the military to the 
civilian life to teaching to being a fallible ilm and you know continuing in that vein has just been something that I didn't plan at all you know so I can't claim um, any any type of hikmah in that regard Barakalafikum, I do appreciate that honesty, and it does um, admit. Perhaps, perhaps if you could, uh, you know, share a few stories, inshallah. Like how, so how did it all start off? Did you, you know, did you just want to study in Egypt, or did you go? Where did it all like start off for you in terms of the drive to study Islam? Alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin. As far as the drive to study Islam, in in in, you know, again, these things started so long ago. You know, when when I was younger, you know, we had. Muhammad Ali and we had Malcolm X, you know, and these were the main two dais in in the uh, what we're gonna call the black community back in those days. We don't use that term as much, but that's who were the dais, and their you know presence, you know, and character was so engaging, so motivating that you wanted to be like them, and so that's what inspired the study of Islam, and. Uh, there were no resources that you could, not a lot of resources that you could go to that wasn't really tied to an Afrocentric tone at that time. So then, of course, that becomes the avenue that you look into. And as you become old, as I became older, I did not want to fall victim to what I had seen happen in Christendom, which was now we have this Bible and we don't know who wrote it. And we have a translation without the original. And this was something that was so scary for me that I did not want to repeat that in Islam. So when I became a Muslim, I said, I am not going to uh, trust anybody to tell me what this book means. I need to learn Arabic and find out what it means so that I can't get tricked again. And so that began the, 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 the drive that I had to learn Arabic as good as any Arab. So I would ask around like all the people that are people that I knew, you know, who are the best Arabs? And everyone always said the Bedouin, the desert Bedouin. So I had to start thinking, where's this Bedouin at? What, what country do they live in? And where are these the, the best of the Bedouins? And I was told Mauritania. Mauritania is the best of the Bedouins in the language and everything like that. And so I picked up my, my things and, you know, I had been planning to do it. I, I, I wanted to do it. I was a, a teacher in, in Kansas City, Missouri, the, the Islamic School of Kansas City. And I wanted to go. And the principal there, Dr. Jitmud, Abdul Munam uh, Jitmud from Thailand, he told me, no, you can't go. He didn't, he didn't allow me to go when I first wanted to go. Because we were, you know, we said, you're, you're in jihad here, you know, teaching these children. And so I put it off for another year. And then uh, in the, the racism in America got so, you know, engrossing. This is where Ahmed Jallo was shot with 21 gunshots by the police. And I said, I can't take this place anymore. I, I got to get out of here. And so I got on a plane and I just, you know, I went to. Uh, Senegal, because Senegal didn't, you didn't need a visa to go to Senegal. And I wanted to leave, as they say, in, 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 in uh, all of leggy, leggy. I need to get out right away. So uh, I left, I went to Senegal, 
and I stayed in Senegal for about a month or two or something like that. And then I arranged with some other Bedouins who were in Senegal to go to Mauritania. And I traveled with them through the desert, like in a caravan to Mauritania. I got to Mauritania and I asked them, who are the Bedouins? Where, who are the best guys in Arabic? And they were like, well, you see those guys over there? <laughs> so it wasn't like go over where, so those guys right over there. And Alhamdulillah, I had heard of Sheikh Muhammad Salam or Dabdul the Shafiqi, Rahimahullah. And I had asked, I knew students from Sheikh Ibn Uthaymeen and I spoke to them and they told me, look, if we had the ability, because Ibn Uthaymeen was sick at that time. And he was like, they was like, don't come out here. I was like, I'm going to come out there and say, no, stay with that Sheikh out there. Because if we had an opportunity, we would go study with him. And I was like, really? So I went out to the desert and I sat with the Sheikh and the Sheikh was a retired chief justice of Mauritania. So it was like number three in the country. Okay. Retired chief justice of Mauritania. And uh, he allowed me, I told him my story. He allowed me to stay and, and taught me hand in hand. And so it was the beginning. Now here it is. Now I'm studying to be a judge. And at that time, I didn't know that's what I, where I would go, but here's the chief justice. And he started to, you know, teach us from the beginning. And that was his style how to become this. And you didn't realize it until after you get away from him, what he was doing. Does that make sense? And he focused us on the language. And then the language from there, we moved to usul al-fiqh. And this helped us learn how to think like Muslims, how to put things together. And of course, the spirit of all of that, like the, the root and the backbone bone of all of that was always the Quran, the Quran. The Quran, your vocabulary came from the Quran. And so that's what, uh, that's where I started and everything. And, and I would have stayed there. I had no intentions of leaving, but uh, you know, I, I had a child there who, who, who died. My wife had, a, had, had, a, uh, had fallen down and we had, she had to go to the hospital and there were no hospitals in Mauritania. So we had to leave and go to uh, Senegal Alhamdulillah, and uh, my child died, and Alhamdulillah, and we went to more, to Senegal. There was a hospital in Senegal, and then th that was prolonged. She was in a hospital for a while, and so I went back and got my other, my, I had two wives, and I got the rest of my family. We moved to Senegal, and then Alhamdulillah, Allah blessed us to be with Dr. Sheikh Lo, who had just come back from uh, getting his PhD. In, in the sciences of Hadith in Medina University. And they were building a university for him in Senegal. The man himself is a university. And he built, and I was there and I was you know, under his protection while I was there. And I was again, learning from him, and this wasn't planned. Allah blessed me to go from one safe umbrella to another safe umbrella. And then 9-11 happened. And I, my, my daughter, sorry, actually my daughter got sick. My, 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 one of my daughters got sick and I was afraid for her life because she had malaria. And I said, if I, I would feel you know, like I did something wrong if I didn't do everything I could to help this child. And so I took her back to the United States. When I was in the United States, a few days later, 9-11 happens, okay? <laughs> so now she's, you know, alhamdulillah, no longer sick. I sent her out of the country to get back with her family, my wives. And then when I came, 
back to Senegal. My wives wanted to go back to the United States to visit their families. And I said, no, never that. You know, the place is crazy. And so they said, no, you just want to be cheap. I said, no, look, just name a country, any country, and we'll go there as long as we don't go back to the United States. And they chose Egypt. Okay. And so we went to Egypt again. We got to Egypt. It wasn't a plan because I wanted to do it. It was just to help my wives keep cool. And when we got to Egypt, because we knew a family there, the Abdullahs, they were there. We were friends from Kansas City, uh, Missouri. And when we got there, I didn't realize it, but Tonta is the home of Tajweed and Kira'at in Egypt. This is Husri's hometown. You know, Sheikh Imam Husri, and everybody knows him and everything. So we fell again into the lap of the perfect place to study and finish Quran, and that's where I finished Quran in in that you know um, environment. And the Azhari sheikhs there. How did I get to study with them? Because of the secret police. The secret police came to us and knocked on our doors and said, "Well, why did you come to this country?" I said, "Hey, I came to study Quran." They said, "Well, if it's true, then we're going to assign somebody for you to study Quran. If you deviate off them, we're going to lock you up. You know, we're going to kick you out the country." So they took me to the chief qari of Tanta, Sheikh Saad Ghanam, rahimahullah. And, you know, he was running the clinic, the Azhari clinic for Tahfid al-Qur'an and Qira'at. If you didn't get a license from him, you could not, uh, what do you call it, recite, you could not lead the Salah in the Masajid in Egypt. So I got to study directly from him, the Qira'ah of Warsh, you know, and I studied with him. And at the same time, Abdul Adim, Bedoui, I was living you know, on his, in his village. And so I got to study the al-wajiz and fiqh and tafsir with him and that type of thing. So again, Allah guided me to these places. It wasn't like I knew to go there and get that. And then I got to meet the different students that were coming back with Sheikh Muqbil, like uh, Sheikh uh, Abdul Sahadeen Abdul Mawjood and, you know, uh, uh, and those guys who were very, very instrumental, Mustafa Adoui. I got to work with them because I got a job working at Dar Salaam as the, uh, I was the head of the research department, okay? So we were doing lots of books and if we had challenges or we didn't understand something, we would go to Sheikh Mustafa Adoui or we would have to get on the phone with uh, Sheikh Mubarak Fouri, you know, the Sheikh who wrote the book, Rahiq al-Makhtoum. And so from that job, I got Ijaz in the six books of the Hadith working with him and uh, Abu, Abu Khalil and Bilal Abdul Karim, who just got let out of jail in, in Syria. You know, we were all part of that, that crew. Uh, uh, Abu Mansur, who runs the Hijra now website, he was our technician in that whole, you know, this, but we were the, behind the scenes, the research department. We Englishized so many of the books you see today, Bulugh Maram, Rahik Maktoum, the Golden Series of the Companions of the Prophet, you know, Riyad uh, al-Salihin, we put those in from that erudite old, you know, uh, English to the American style English with footnotes and all those things that we, we did that. And the only reason we left is because Dar Salaam wouldn't give us any credit. <laughs> they would put research department. And so we're like, look, man, that's, that doesn't help us, you know? We don't get any residuals from that. So again, that was the route, but that route was our route through Talamul Ilm, okay? And then I got to go to Sri Lanka and meet with the, the, the Chief Justice uh, Salim, who was also in charge of the, the, the vice president of The Hague, you know, which is the international 
um, court and people didn't realize that he was a Muslim and he was the chief justice of the Supreme Court in Sri Lanka. So I got to sit with him and he gave me a whole bunch of direction on international law. So now I'm being guided, you know, on what to do and how to do it. And all those things helped me, you know, throughout the different experiences that I had. And now, alhamdulillah, I'm, I'm here in Turkey. Alhamdulillah, I'm made Hijra. We're over here. We have uh, organized ourselves uh, on our website, Timbuktu, to, to educate people how the Westerner can come and learn the deen using the skills he already possesses from that Western education, but not letting go of the traditional texts that he needs to go through. So there's no generational gap between the ulama of then and the ulama of now. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's quite interesting you chose Turkey. Obviously, there are economic reasons and there's religious reasons of choosing Turkey to, to stay in. But it's also half Asia, half Europe, sort of middle ground. Not even half Europe. <laughs> People think it's half Europe. It's like, it's like one finger. You have 10 fingers. One yeah. finger is Europe. All the rest is Asia. But it's not mm. far East Asia. It's Central Asia. Central. So that Central Asian has been mo very much ignored by the West because they, they don't want you to realize that they've taken so much from the Central Asians, okay? Cultural-wise and, and, and educational-wise and everything. So, yes, Turkey is a very uh, vital position. Uh, there are other countries that are great, but Turkey is in a very good position and has established itself as uh, up there with the superpowers, but Muslim. And Turkey is, is one of those places where you can, whether you're Turkish or not, you can preserve your Islamic identity. Because people say, well, you know, there's this, there's that, and you know, oh, there, there's Sufis. There. There's Sufis everywhere. You know, if you wanna, if you have a problem with the Sawaf, let's say, right? There, and how can you complain when you live in a land of Kafirs? You get my point? And but here from every spectrum, you have scholars of every on every level and no one bothers you about being Muslim. And that's the thing that, that you have in Turkey that you don't have other places. No one really bothers you about you being Muslim. And have okay? you seen, sorry, Sheikh Ona, that you've seen, have you seen Ulema from Syria and all parts of other countries flee to, to Turkey? And have you found yes. there to be a lot of source of knowledge there as well? Okay, Sheikh Sabuni just passed away. Yeah, Alhamdulillah. Mm. I was at his. I was at his janazah. Mm. Alhamdulillah. There were oh, yes, thousands man. of people there. Mm. Okay, I I could send you some pictures of it after this that you can you know disseminate. Mm. There was the amount uh, and the amount of scholars that showed up. Okay, is is amazing. Yes, there are communities of New Zealanders and Yalova. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Australians. I mean, everybody's here. You know, everybody in the world has a patch of people here. There's loads of British people as well in, in, in the uh, Istanbul area. And Istanbul, you know what they say about Istanbul, they say that if the, the, the world would have a capital, Istanbul would be the capital of the world. You know, and Alhamdulillah, that says a lot for the, uh, the country itself. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. And Alhamdulillah, you have a president like Erdogan who you don't see any other president in the world, Muslim or not, reciting Quran like he can recite Quran 
and doing it without, you know, any airs about himself. Okay. This is a natural, you know, I'm Muslim and I am not ashamed to be Muslim. Okay. And that's important. They don't put it on their shoulder and say, knock it off. But the society is established. You know, one of the stark differences that I notice here in Turkey, as opposed to the United States, in the United States, the masjid is a temporary structure. Okay, you know, we get a, 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 a an old building, or we get a storefront, and we establish the adhan and the salah. Here, when you look at the masjid in Turkey, they're these solid, mountainous, humongous structures. Okay, that give you the sense of stability when you look at them. This is here to stay. Okay. And that, that sense of Islamic longevity and stability resonates with the rest of the world. And that's why you have here multiple communities of people. Now, is, is Turkey the most, a perfect country? No, it's a country. And you have people from everywhere. And so people, you know, are going to do the things people do. <laughs> but... You know, when you compare it to the alternatives, see, this is what you have to deal with. What are your choices? Then it becomes pretty, pretty clear that there are a few countries that offer the, uh, the, the clarity and the stability for Muslims that, you know, um, that, that Turkey does, at least today. And may Allah bless the country and, and, and protect the president and the stability Amen. of his land. Um, that kind of segues quite nicely to the, actually the first question because it seems to me, Alhamdulillah, for telling me that you know your story, and I can imagine if we based the entire discussion just off your story, it wouldn't even fit the time we've got here. So I really appreciate that you summarized it as well. But one thing I realized when you were sharing that was there was a it was deep responsibility and care for your family as well in terms of where your family should be and where certain places. You know, and 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 you know, uh, if you could kind of you know elaborate on that. Okay, Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. One of the things that I realized again, I didn't, you know, uh, I've been in the military since I was a young person. Okay, so when I was 16 years old, I signed up for the United States Marine Corps. One of the things they teach you in the Marine Corps is that you know your family has to know what your life choices are. Okay. You, you joined the Marine Corps, you joined to give your, your life and that type of thing. You might die in the service of your country and corps and that type of thing. Your wife has to know that, right? She has to be, you know, uh, a con cognizant of those type of decisions. That helped me understand how to be a father and a husband as a talibullah ilm. A lot of times men get married to these young ladies and they don't express to them that I am a talibullah ilm. I am not going to the movies with you this weekend. You know, I am, I am, if I have extra time, I'm going to, I'll take you to the library and we'll look for some books and we'll do this. And so you have to, the person has to know what you're going to do as a Taliban. And, and you have to make sure you take your family to a place where they can grow, okay? Where they can blossom. What's the first need, or not we need, obligation that you have to have to fulfill for your wife. Meaning, what is her first right as a woman, as a wife? Her first right as a wife, as Sheikh Balal Phillips taught us, is to be put in an environment where her Islam can blossom. 
my wife's Islam and my children's Islam cannot blossom in the United States. Does that make sense? Mm. So it was an educated decision to look for and to cater for your family and your, your spouse and your children. Do you have a responsibility say? before Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, when you die, where did you leave your family? And why did you leave them there? What did Ibrahim, Ibrahim say? I left them in the wadi, right? He left them in the valley and he made dua for them. So I know our decisions have to be made based on our mortality, okay? I will die one day. What will I say to Allah when he says, where did you leave your family? What decision did you make? What sense did it mean to leave them there? And I did not feel comfortable saying that I left them in the United States or someplace else where their Islam is being attacked. Literally in the United States, ladies' khimas are being lit on fire while they stand there and wait for the, the light. A Muslim woman got punched in the face, punching, pumping gas. I don't got to worry about that here. I do not have to worry about that in Turkey, inshallah ta'ala, we won't have to worry about that and going forward. So, you know, yes, there are people who smoke cigarettes, there are people who, you know, do all types of criminal activities, but one thing is sure here, a woman who is Muslim or not Muslim, covered or uncovered, will not be touched. That's just not um, part of the uh, culture here, and her Islam, her Islamic identity, will not be challenged. So uh, that's at least at this stage we, we, we see. We can only work with what we see, but you do have to make conscientious um, decisions in that regard. It's not the only place in the world. You have Tanzania, you have you know uh, Ethiopia, you have other countries, you have Indonesia, you have Brunei, you have other countries that allow that type of flow as well. Uh, Ghana, you could you could talk about that. Uh, Guinea, other countries that I can think of, Pakistan, but you know there are other challenges that come with each decision you decide to make in that regard. And each individual has to look at his circumstances and determine for themselves what is you know what will work for them and work for the longevity of their families. I think that Turkey is a good decision for people born and raised in the West because it's like a looking in the mirror. Like you know, like if you're in the United States, you find the worst person in the United States, you ask him, what is your religion? He'll say, I'm Christian, even though he's never been in a church a day in his life, right? You come to Turkey, you find the guy standing in the street drinking wine. And you say, are you Muslim? He says, astaghfirullah, abe. He says, what do you mean? Don't you see me drinking, taking three sips at a time? I said, bismillah, right? And you say, well, this guy crazy? No, he may be jahil, but he identifies as a Muslim. Which would you rather have? You know, to me, the choice is simple. Now, can everyone come here? No. Maybe everybody, will everyone come here? No. Is it the best decision for everyone? Maybe not. But, you know, it, it give us a, some basis of where to go from. And I'm not of that. And as far as ulema and those things like that, this place is replete with ulema. As far as the, the claim that they don't speak Arabic, 30% of the population is Arabic. Okay, you have old Syria on the whole, the whole lower southern, uh, uh, what do you call it, border, straddles Arab countries and is considered old Syria, Iraq. What do you, so how could anyone imagine that you can't speak, you know, Arabic here? It's just that the Arabic is used for religious purposes and the Turkish is used for social and political purposes. 
You know, so I wouldn't suggest anyone to come here who's not willing to learn Turkish language. And that becomes the issue, the ugly English speaking, or we call it the ugly American. I say I want to be Muslim, but I am not willing to let go of the recruitments of kufr and the kufr um, culture. Okay? And Allah speaks about this in the Quran, but we kind of miss it. In the Quran, Allah tells us about Bani Israel. He saves us, Bani Israel, from the slavery of under Fir'aun. Okay? Then when they get out, they say, hey, where's the McDonald's? Right? Where's the McDonald's? Where's the Burger King? Where's the, the, the chicken McNuggets and stuff like that? You say, well, he doesn't say that in the Quran. Yeah, they said, where the, uh, the, where's the, the onions and the lentils and the basali? Where are all the food that we used to eat with Fir'aun? Now, the thing to note is that's not their food. That's the food of Ali Fir'aun that they got used to under slavery. They're out, but they want the same things they had there. Same thing you see with people who want to come and say they make hijrah to uh, the country of the Muslim. Oh, do they have an English-speaking school? No, it's not England. You want an English-speaking school? Stay in England. You want an American school? Stay in America. You get my point? Come here and teach your child in Arabic. Teach your child Turkish. Teach them that. But the mentality is that, no, that's inferior. What are you training, training your child to do? To go back there? You get my point? So we have to change our mindset because a lot of people are not willing or do not see the benefit of an, an education that is not Western, okay, or Westernized or Eurocentric because they believe that this Eurocentric Westernized uh, uh, mentality is superior to an Islamicized, whether it's Afro-Asiatic or not. You know, when I say that because you have Asia and you have Africa, you know, these areas have a different cultural uh, application. And when they when they show sciences and those things like that. So this is something that people have to reevaluate. Why? Because you come here and all you're doing, if you do come here with that mentality, is spreading the same kufr that you were taught in the West by your colonizer and slaver. And that's not what's supposed to happen. You have to realize that you need a re-education and that maybe the things that you have been taught is incorrect and you need to start all over again. And this goes into the thing that you spoke to me about the other day about, you know, what do we have to do to re-educate ourselves? What steps do, do we need to take in that regard? You get my point? The first thing we have to do is to realize that we need a re-education and that perhaps the way the things, the way we see things is incorrect. One of the things that we see as incorrect is our whole notion of history. You find Muslim speakers and, and so-called educated people talk about prehistoric history. This term, prehistoric history. If you're a Muslim, there is no way you can believe in this concept of prehistoric history. Why? Because Allah tells us the beginning of time. He tells us the moment he created man. So what are you talking about prehistoric? When we know from the beginning of time when Adam, when he created creation, the beginning of it, from Adam to Abraham, we have all the pertinent history of the world. Everything, every famous man that needs to be mentioned, every epoch that is there. And then there are some places that are not. So where is the prehistoric history? You get my point? So we, oh, we believe in the Neanderthal, and Neander, Neander is a valley in Germany. 
Now, how can we say this one valley represents all of the whole world? Again, you see this superiority and inferiority complex based on the fact that you've been listening to someone who's been kicking you in the butt and telling you that you ain't nothing and that you're inferior. And now you start believing that. Okay. Maybe the people in the Neander Valley were savages. I'm not going to argue it. If they say they are, they are. But everybody in the world ain't from Neander Valley. Nor does it represent the whole culture of the world. We came from Adam. If they want to say they came from monkeys, that's them. Maybe they did come from monkeys. But we didn't. We came from Adam. Does that make sense? So even yeah, from a so from a, even from a historic point of view, we have to reevaluate what we've been told. Even the sort well, what what happened in World War One, World War Two. We don't talk about it except from the colonizers' perspective. What about the Muslim world? What have we ever heard their story? Now you come to a place like Turkey and you hear the other side of the coin. And that education is enlightening. It gives you, and, and then you see, you'll start to hear those people who are inclining towards the Eurocentric version and those who are inclining towards the Islamic version, because they'll call the Islamic, the Muslims version of fact, legendary. Okay. Oh, that's legendary. That's reported. But they'll call the other one, aside from the colonizers and the, and the crusaders, fact. Now, I learned this in the military. What is the difference between a rebel and a freedom fighter? You tell me. A freedom fighter is fighting on, the, on behalf of the... the, the the right team and the the rebel is someone fighting against you uh but is um going going against what you believe something like that I don't know there is no difference between the two of them in actuality the only difference is the perspective of the speaker mm, yeah that's it's it position what position yeah. you're in if you're mm. part of the government then they're rebels if you're part mm. of the people that doesn't believe that that particular government, let's say, is correct, then they are freedom fighters. Is it correct for me to say, Shaykhana? Is it? Yeah, I do. Is it correct for me to say, Shaykhana, that your perspective on all of this um, is to, and this whole concept of, you know, tajdeed or like ref reformation and and re-education, is it something that? We need to be very critical and and non unbiased, and to remove all the biases that we've accumulated our lives in in the Western context, and try our best to approach Islam, as I say, in Surah Al-Baqarah, Ya Ayyuha go into Islam wholeheartedly, and try our best to realign everything, and to see what does Islam actually say. Should we stop? Should we remove our biases? Like. Is that what you're trying to say, Sheikh, or not? Or if I, if I just delved into it too much? Alhamdulillah, Ya Rabbil Alameen. The ayah you mentioned is perfect. Ya ayyuhaladheena amanu dhukulu fi silmi kafa. Enter into Islam wholeheartedly. But it doesn't mean wholeheartedly. Kafa means in every aspect and in, in, in angle. Don't have step. Go all the way down. I say get down like four flat tires as we, we're taught, right? But the reason why I'm saying this approach that I'm saying is because when you become to Islam, you make a khula. You take off all the other things of kufr. 
That's why we have to remove those things that were there before us. We have to realign, well, I'm sorry, relook at what did I believe and is it in line with Islam? Does that make sense? And so that's what I'm talking about. And we haven't done that. We've pigeonholed the research. We've talked about it from an academic perspective. Shirk is wrong. That's right. Oh, we yell and scream about shirk, but we don't look at shirk in practice in our daily lives. Okay. We talk about, oh, don't worship the graves, but that's not the main thing in our lives that we see people falling victim to when it comes to shirk and understanding the qadr of Allah. Or we don't even talk about the, the fallacies of the horoscope in our lives. Did you get my point? Or calling the days of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Woden's Day, Thor's Day, Friday, Saturday, how that is shirk and kufr. Does that make sense? Yeah. We're not dealing with the issues that have enslaved and put the Muslims down and given rise to kufr. Not realistically. And so what I'm saying is that our generation has to do that. And in order to do that, instead of looking outwardly, we have to look inwardly. Okay, that's the trick of the eyes. It focuses outwardly, but you're supposed to focus as a Muslim on yourself, al-muraqaba, and to look at yourself. What do I need to do? Many times you look into the books of fiqh, it says the first obligation of the abid is to get to know Rahman with tawheed, right? The first obligation of the slave is to understand who is Allah, you know? What do I need to know about Ar-Rahman and the, the unique and the oneness, the singleness that Allah has, the attributes and titles that Allah has alone? And then it doesn't stop there. I have to look at my fardu'ains, what is obligatory for me to do. And most Muslims, we haven't even done this part. If you ask the average Muslim, he thinks he's the epitome of, of the Muslims. But ask him, how many types of salah are there? And he can't tell you. There are 17 different types of salah. Can he pray them? Ask the average Muslim, can he wash a body? Can he simple thing like wash a body, the deceased, and can he lead the salah? Do you know what du'as to make just in the salat of janazah? What is the kunut? Simple things. How do you pray salat al You get my point? And the average Muslim will not be able to not only name the 17 salah, but doesn't even know how to pray them. He says, I'm Muslim. I'm the greatest Muslim since, you know, Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, right? He sees himself as Ul-Tughrul al-Ghazi. But then you ask him, okay, zakah, what do we pay zakah on? What are the five things we pay zakah on? Name them. And what is the benefit of that? Crickets. So, but, but I'm going to tell you, you're off it. Okay, you're off it. You're not a good Muslim. Why? Because you're not wearing a white thobe today. Of course. We disagree on an issue of, of, of Aqidah, but we agree on eight of the issues, but we disagree on a couple of issues where there is maybe a disagreement amongst thousands of scholars around the world on this particular issue. OK, but I'm going to focus on the things that I disagree with you about and call you all types of dirty, another, you know, whatsoever and spread this type of conversation. But I have not spread the real knowledge that there are five things we make, we praise it, we, we use to make zakah. And the purpose of that zakah is not only to help the poor person, but to help me. You get my point? To help me yeah. preserve my wealth. Could I, ask a, could I ask a question? Um, because I feel like um, 
I wonder if our viewers to perhaps appreciate this a bit more. I understand, obviously, you mentioned at the start two of your your role models in uh, growing up, obviously, is Muhammad Ali and um, Malcolm X, you know, Rahimahumullah. Um, my question to you is that, you know, with regards to what happened, uh, you know, the Afro Afro-American community in, in America and the, the slave trade and how they were trying to whitewash history and, you know, forget your roots and how they were trying this is this is what going on and sort of uh, enlightenment on the opposite end of recently people have just been researching you know what has really been happening and that sort of reformation of going really far back and trying to see you know question everything critically do you think that mindset that you've learned from this do you think that mindset is have you learned it from this or if you have have you used that to approach you know islamic knowledge and, and reform in that way in the sense that you're looking to, you know, going going into Islam with the same sort of mindset of trying to understand Islam, how it should be understood, and trying to, you know, you know, go through it in that way. Is that is that a, would that be a correct observation, or do you understand no. my point? Or I do understand your question. You're saying yeah. is that this is something that this learned behavior from my experience in in the African American community yeah. as we with the the uh, the systemic racism. Yeah. That with or we call the Jim Crow apartheid system that you know um, my actually my generation is the first generation born at the end of the apartheid system in the United States the mm -hmm. uh, late 60s you know and even though we grew up in this this the end of that system in the beginning of you know the end of segregation no that's not how where I came from with this particular mentality um, the mentality that I have now is born out of the fact that I uh, have been taught, I got to go to Mauritania mm. in the late 90s, where they still had shiuch who experienced life under the Khalifa. And those mm. shiuch that I met, the ones in Ethiopia, the ones in, in, in Egypt, and the way they taught Islam is totally different from those who teach Islam post the life of the Khilifa, the Khilafa. Okay, so what we are taught is that we do not believe the Kafir. This is an Islamic principle. Allah teaches you that. But we find people nowadays affirming the Kafir and doubting the believer. So things are, are being twisted in that regard. We find that, that there was an establishment of following, for example, we say we follow the Salaf. Right? This has been a, a, a rhetorical statement people have been claiming, but at the same time, they say follow the Salaf, they say don't follow a Madhab. When every one of the people of the Madhab is one of the Salaf, there's schizophrenia in that mindset. Does that make sense? And no one has approached yeah. that, no one has called them on that and say, what, what are you talking about? You're saying don't you say follow the salaf? Isn't Abu Hanifa a tabi'i? Isn't Imam Malik a tabi'i? Isn't you know Shafi'i and Ahmed ibn Hanbal aren't these the salaf first three generations? So aren't we instead of just taking his statement on this and his statement on that, we have a here a whole body of their rulings. How is that not following the salaf? Now, of course, we step away from that if we find a proof that shows that they were incorrect. It's the first thing we were taught by Sheikh al-Albani, 
that if you find a narration that goes against my statement, throw my statement against the wall. But that doesn't mean throw all my statements against the wall, right? Those that conform, then you follow that. And in, the, in, in following the method, is in those things where there's, there's a gray area, there's, amb there's ambiguity, and we don't know which one is right, then you follow whichever sheikh you believe to be more correct in that regard. And this is, again, in following, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, the urf, where Allah says, what murbil urf, what is well known in that area from the sharia, from the sharia, from the Muslims, not from the kuffar. So there has been a, a, a big change in the world and people have not been championing the side of the muslims and i say the emperor has no clothes on stop with this nonsense and argumentation and we say we want to unite on truth let's start talking about truth where are the hufad we say we follow quran and sunnah then how come we don't have a whole bunch of people finishing the quran if we're following it so well because we haven't learned the real things the 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 intimate aspects of the, of the sunnah or the deen, which is to make it personal, okay? Make it impact on me, right? So if I'm practicing Quran and sunnah, that means I must be reading the Quran. And our teachers in every camp that I went to pre 9-11, those pre 9-11 places that I went to, every one of them had people memorizing the Quran. And every year there were people graduating from that camp or a particular place where they memorized Quran. But now we have a whole bunch of talking heads, bobbling, running their mouths, and you don't find them finishing the Quran or even promoting the finishing of Quran. They study their deen through fatawa, and this is not how we're supposed to learn our deen. So we have to have some people say, hey, look, stop. Let's go back to the traditional way of learning our deen, which is contextualizing the, the experience to fit me and you. Where do I get that from? I get that from the man who killed a hundred people. His success was based upon what would benefit him under his circumstances. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so every one of us has to see himself as in this dire situation and say, okay, I am like this man. What do I need to do? Not what does Asim need to do? And my name is Abu Tauba. Nefsi, nefsi, right? I have to look at that. So my mentality, I believe it comes from partially from my father. My father, you know, he, he was, he worked in law. And so, you know, we learned to pay attention to what the law says in that regard. Then based on my educators who have been, you know, the ulama, how they focus that way. And from what we understand from the Quran and how we're told to focus on ourselves, myself, okay? And make it impacting and imperative, I'm not imperative, but meaningful to me. And that's all that I can, I can imagine my stance coming from, okay? Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Barakallah for clarifying. I think you've actually talked about so many things within the topic because we had like a you know like a list of yeah, areas and you've talked about you've talked about a lot, mashallah. So you've talked about some of the pitfalls and and the challenges that we have studying Islam. Well, uh, you know, there I didn't talk about the pitfalls of studying Islam. The pitfalls of hmm. of studying Islam is again just being honest with yourself. If you're just honest with yourself and you you say to yourself, I need to know where I need to start, and then you actually start there, 
then you will see progress. That's all. You know, as too many times we want to pretend or we were, we're ashamed to show where we're at or where we're not. Okay? And so we want to study these, these. Everybody wants to get, you know, let's study Al-Bukhari. Well, we're not at Bukhari. You know, we need to study the Sunnah of Abi Dawood. That's what was preferred for the layman. Let's study what the layman needs first. You get my point? That's where we, we, need to, we need to go through those basic things, but we're going, we're doing things that are above our own head for show purposes, as opposed to doing what is critical and impacting on you and me today. That's the pitfall of it. We have so many Muslims, but we're with some families now, but the household is run in a non-Islamic fashion. Okay? We're not, you know, indoctrinating our children in the mindset of Muslims. You ask them about the TV personalities, and they know. Dora the Explorer, they know the different, you know, the, the little SpongeBob thing and everything like that. But if you ask them about Sahaba, you ask them about different people like that, Oh, they're too young for that. What do you mean they're too young for that? They're able to watch SpongeBob, a homosexual thing that promotes this type of mentality, sarcasm, and it strips them of their dean and their shyness. But they can't know Islamic personalities. Well, there's none out there. Well, how do you know? Maybe not in English, but is that the only visa that you can deal with? You see how weak minded we are? Well, I, I can't. What this I can't, this mentality of arrogance, this self-centeredness, it got to be my way or the highway, right? And then we wonder what was wrong with Bani Israel. The same thing that's wrong with us. You know, you and your Lord go, well, I'm not going to go there. I'm scared. We don't want to leave the West because of the, the so-called luxuries we get there. But at the same time, we, we've experienced the racism. We experienced the kuf. We experienced the loss of our families. And the tightness like it's, and it's getting more and more like a prison. The people in Germany are talking about how they're being forced to ex expose their children to lewd behavior in the schools. The people in Britain, they're talking about how their children are exposed to the, the, the transvestites in the schools and things like that. But I don't want to leave that because they have AC, they have air conditioners. And I heard that the other place is dirty. You get my point? This yeah, is... That, this it's, it's, it's sort of sorry, Sheikh Hanan, but is it basically you're saying that when we actually come down to it, to the thick of why we want what we do and what we, you know, preference preference of living in these conditions and stuff is sometimes it could just be convenience, it could be health, it could be comfortability. Uh, yeah. Comfortability in with, but it's not really comfortable. We complain about it all the time. <laughs> if so, yeah, if we're so comfortable, why are we complaining? Yeah. You get my point? What I'm saying is that to make it plain, we have believed the superiority of kufr and the inferiority of the Islamic world, the Muslim world. Because we'll say, oh, they're not Islamic. So it has to be a utopia in the Islamic world, but you're not living in a utopia in the, the quote unquote democracy. And who said democracy was the best thing since ice cream anyway? Right? The prophet didn't live in a democracy. It was a dictatorship. Prophet was a dictator, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and what a great dictator he was. But we don't understand that because we're just repeating what we've been told to repeat and holding an attachment to something that we don't own and doesn't belong to us. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to reflect 
on what we, our lives represent as we live them, not only in the places that we live them, but in the manner that we live our lives. You know, I look at, I'll give you an example with just African American people, or just not even African American, just African people in general. We claim those of us who were in the United States claim to be free, right? Because slavery ended in 1864, at least chattel slavery ended, and then Jim Crow apartheid ended in 1968. So since 1968, we have legal freedom and you know uh, physical freedom. But you still got the same name that the slave master gave you. It's not your name. You get my point? You're not, you're free, but you still walk around calling yourself a slave. And we said, that doesn't make sense. If you're free, you know, why are you still talking in your slave master's language? Why don't you talk like an, there's no ethnic language in Africa that's English. And the same thing with those who've been colonized. You're, you're African, you're free, I'm African, you're not really African, you know, some of them might say to the others, but you're speaking English and French. How are, you know, you get more, and the Muslims are doing this on a, a non-ethnic scale, but on an Islamic scale. Sometimes we need to just look at that and say, hey, where have we made this distinction? And because distinction, wala wal bara, is the first issue we learn in Islam. Why do we make the shahada? Why don't we just say, I'm a believer in my heart, I don't have to say anything? Because Allah says, well, asr, inna linsana, lafi, khus, all of the people are a bunch of losers. Every one of them is a loser. Except those who believe. Well, how do we know you're part of them? So there is this distinction. You have to distinguish yourself from the kufar. It's not enough that you just believe and don't say anything. You have to Islamic. You have to show the apparentness of it and distinguish it through a public declaration that I am with the believers. Now, this can't just be lip service. It has to also follow activities that are salih. These words salih has been erroneously translated as righteous. What they are are rectifying, islaha, to rectify our situations. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. So we look at our situations. What am I doing right here? What am I doing wrong here? Let me do the things that will rectify my situation. Like the man who killed a hundred people, he started to rectify his situation which for him meant to go to a place where he can practice his deen and not get busy doing the things that he was continuously doing in that particular place. So this is what I'm, I'm, I'm referring to. And now this idea of wala wal bara has been, is being whitewashed nowadays. And we're told we don't have to distinguish ourselves. We can look like kuffar. We can talk like kuffar. We shouldn't leave the lands of the kuffar. We shouldn't do anything to bring up the land of the Muslims and divide, separate ourselves from the kuffar. And this is not something that we find in the Quran or the Sunnah. Nor is it something that enhances the Islam of our generations that come after us. Because now they come up and they don't have the same experience we have. So this is what I'm talking about. I mean, I mean, on a side point as well, like um, my grandparents, my grandparents moved here from Pakistan in the 1950s. Um, and generally there's like a trend where like the first generation like did the most practicing, then like 
you go second generation then it's kind of like you lose that sort of muslim identity and then the third generation it's like it's like some people don't even identify as muslims anymore and that may not be for my particular situation but a lot of people's like general trend when we move into lands where obviously the adhan is not being played or islam is not being you know made apparent it can be very traumatizing it can be very difficult for young people to build that bridge between going to school and seeing people and, and blending with the culture which is inherently un-islamic you know alcohol gambling sex all of these different things as vices that we see in these communities we have to then deal with it in school environments and we peer pressured and so you you may come across as extreme but you're not extreme in the sense that what you're saying is exactly what we need to be appreciative of and to see it from a completely pure perspective from from a hanif perspective of this is islam make islam apparent uh, my question actually was to you is that um before you ask a question let me say yeah. this the in the united states they talk about this in their policies their policy of americanizing a person the person who comes over as an immigrant when, even if he gets citizenship he's not considered an american at any moment his citizenship can be taken away from him the children of immigrants who were not born in the united states even though they're naturalized citizens born in the united states can get kicked out of america at any time they want to and same as in england as has happened to some people who were um Pakistan parents they left England to go work in some of the uh, the help groups around the world and then when they tried to come back they said no you're not you're not British said, what do you mean I'm born British yeah but your parents aren't British you're not really British we can take your citizenship and they took th that person's citizenship and there was this big thing on Twitter you know how British is British and they thought it was racism but it's policy the only one that becomes an American citizen or British citizen is if those parents who were born in the United States give child, give birth to a child that's born in the United States. Now that child, that third generation that you said, now he is American or she is American. Why is that? Because the first generation will never forget their past, their hustle of being raised in the land of whatever land that was. Now, when the second generation, they're mutants, they're between two worlds. Their parents still spoke to them in the native tongue and they learned some of the things in the, this tongue. They might even have an accent or maybe able to hide the accent when they want to. But that third generation, that child, that child is going to take the full indoctrination necessary to be a, have the superiority complex of Great Britain or the United Kingdom or the United States and to look down at all those other countries that are not in line with that you know, mentality. And that child, both the second and the third generation has an identity crisis. And that's what I'm talking about. The Muslims have an identity crisis. We don't know who our wilaya is supposed to be for, who our association with our allegiance is supposed to be for. We'll do anything to be British or American or French. You know, in order to be an American citizen, you have to learn English. People will break their necks sideways to learn English so they can speak at B2 level English in order to make sure they get that American passport. But you tell them that they have to learn Arabic to become a, a Muslim because you're in the nation of Islam. And they'll tell you, I'm not an Arab. You're not a British man even. You're not an English man either. But you learned English. 
you understand it from that perspective. And I'm saying we have to even out our, our mentalities here. Okay. And so uh, again, we have to understand that what we're doing is anti-Islamic, just as anti-Islamic as those people we claim are oppressing us, that we have a hand in our own oppression. If I could kindly comment, are you saying that, you know, if we were to live in these lands, for sake of argument, anyway, for whatever reason that makes it fine, but if you were to live in these lands, anything passive is going to be completely detrimental for your children. For example, if you don't talk about Islam, if you do not make Islam apparent in your family, in your community, uh, and you don't spread Islam, then what you're doing is anti-Islamic. Is that is that correct? Is that what you're trying to say? Or are you... I'm saying this. I'm saying that what we should be doing is what I call your circle of influence. The ones that we should be focusing on the most is our wives and children as men. And the wives should be focusing on their husbands and their children to teach. You don't have to go outside the house to find people to give da'wah to. Okay? I'm saying that if we focus on teaching our children our history, our when I say our history, I mean by you ask most children, tell them, tell me a story about your great grandfather. They probably can't remember his name. But you're supposed to, and with your parents, your, your, your ancestors, do everything but worship them, treat them in the most excellent way, right? What does that mean? You know, that means they're supposed to know them and honor them and know where they came from. The first story Allah gives us in the Quran is the story of Adam. That's significant because he's telling you your origins. And that is important before he starts telling you laws. He tells you where you came from and how you got where you came today. Because then after that, he tells you the story of Ibrahim before he starts telling you laws to practice. So that you can have a concept of how we started and then where did this Islam completion start coming from? We have to do that. Our children are not identifying with themselves. That's what I'm saying. You'll find people in England, people of, of, of uh, let's say, Desi background, can't even speak any language. But they can speak good English and they'll argue who has a better accent. But you can't speak your own language. That is a loss of identity. That is a shame. That is a slave if I've ever seen one. And Islam has come to lift off and to rip off these chains. When, you get my point? He gave us, Allah tells us in the Quran, he gave us these different colors, well, al-sina, right? He gave us these different groups in order to beautify ourselves, not to look inferior or to be inferior. And Islam, it will fit in every one of these identities. You get my point? It doesn't have to be this one identity, which is the identity of kufr, which is void of Islam. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying go outside and get on the corner and hand out Messiah. No, I'm not saying that. I say we've been doing that for 30 years. What I think you need to do is what the sunnah of the prophet is. The prophet first, he went home to his wife. He talked to his family. Musa, what did he do? He went home, even though he was raised in a castle, and he went back to that castle, and he talked to those people. Because if you come to me, and I never know you before, you can talk, and you can say, man, this guy is really great. He's got his act together. You go to your cousin. He knows you. Man, what are you talking about? Just last year, you did like this and that and the other thing. Huh? And you can't get around that. 
So now you have to do what Musa did. Yeah, I did that and I was a strength. You got to get tarif bidhanbik. You got to come real. Come on, Asim. You talking about being, you know, fulfilling the, you fulfilling your oath. You owe me $50 and you lied to uncle last month. You can't play that with him. Right? I saw you just lose your cool the other day when we was playing basketball or whatever the thing was. So there has to be some realness, some sincerity in that. Not going on a corner and saying, well, uh, he come to Islam. Oh, man, you're such a nice guy. You don't know me. Right? That's psychopathic. Where you put on a face outwardly, but you're inwardly something different. But you can't do that around your family. But that's going to make the change because they know you and they can sense it when you're changing because you're they're dealing with you differently. And that change, your children, they see you. You bring me your child. If you're, I've been to too many masajid where the children, five, six year old, the Adan comes, the children are running around like they never heard the Adan before in their life. Like, they've, like they have care for parents. You're offering salah and they can't understand what's going on. Screaming and acting like damn fools. Shame on their parents. I have had 18 children. And I know. I've seen my, my, my daughter's not even one years old now. Not even one years old. She stands up and offers salah. I'm not bragging. I'm telling you the psychology of doing what you see done. Taking a parent and saying, hey, it's time for salah. Oh, the baby doesn't need to pray. Who said the baby needed to pray? But the baby needs to sit down and acknowledge that this is a time when we do something different. This is a time that the mama and the father are offering salah, so you need to sit close. And then if the environment would hurt that child while you're offering salah, let the bookshelf fall on the child. Then the parent goes to extremes. That's an extremist. We're talking about people who don't put their daughters in khimas at an age where it's pretty, where she can take it off and she feels like all dialed up. But then at 15, when she comes home with Bobby, you want to put her in a headlock and put a khimar on her or kill the girl and say that's your honor. That's an extremist. You should have took it when she was one years old and when she thought it was pretty. And so she had time to develop her identity under that khimar and to see that this is my son looks lovely. We have people who are saying, I am Muslim, but really you're not Muslim. You're Somali. I'm just using Somali as an example. And whatever customs in Islam that conform with Somali culture will do. But whatever cultures in Islam, uh, any rules in Islam that don't conform with Somali culture, we don't do. No. And you could put the, the Desis there. You could put the Africans, anybody you want to in that same thing. And what I'm saying is if you're going to be Muslim, then all these things have to go out the window and we have to be Muslim and, and use Islam as the filter for our cultures and not our cultures as the filter for Islam. Does that make sense? Yeah, I have one question with that actually because um, um, obviously you mentioned about how Allah created us from different cultures and stuff and then Allah says لِتَعَرَفُ right? to, so that we recognize each other. But my question would be that, you know, like... Um, the concept of urf in fiqh, like the of customs or jahala or stuff like that, like you, where does that come into play then? Because I mean, you, okay, is, the is there an option for that? Alhamdulillah, completed. I didn't, I didn't hear the last part. Uh, so that, so I was saying, like, where does that fall in line, like, with what you're saying? Because can we not have aspects of Britishness in us? And I mean, that's kind of like we're kind of born with it. It'd be hard, like, for example, you're no, speaking you're with an American accent. You know, you're not born with it. You know, everybody's born on the fitra, Allah says. Yeah. Okay. True. Environmental. Your parents trained mm. to be that way. So you're not born with it. You're born on the fitra. 
Mm. So when we talk about arf, we're not talking about arf of kufr. We're talking about the arf of the believers. Mm. So now, they, now we go back to the madhahib. Okay? The mm. arf in, in the Indo-Pak area is Hanafi for the most part. The arf yeah. in West Africa is Maliki. The arf in East Africa and Asia is Shafi'i. And in some places, there's Hanafi and Shafi. That's the earth. That's the earth. The earth of the believers. As Allah's messenger, what the, the sunnah of the believers, what the believers are upon. Not what the kufar are upon. Anything the kufar come upon is we look at it hand and foot. We investigate it to make sure it can fit inside of it. Does that make sense? How was it you yeah. say, I'm born with a British accent? Shame on you. How are you born with a British accent? You're a Pakistani person. You should have mm -hmm. been born with a Pakistani tongue. Speaking mm. Urdu or whatever languages that are speaking there. That's your tongue. Not that other thing. You could live in, in England a thousand years. You'll never be an Englishman. Anglo is an is a ethnic group. Anglo-Saxon. And, and, and the Brits and the Britons and the different Kabilas. Those are not your Kabilas. Those are not your tribes. Right? And Allah says it like so that you can distinguish yourselves and know who you are and, and those type of thing. And that's not even the eye I was quoting. When he says he made us alwan wal alsinat, you know, and these different things, this is a different part of the ayah talking about the beauty and the ayat of Allah. This is from the signs of Allah. Allah is saying, so um, we need to, and that's why I said there's an identity crisis because now that child doesn't know where exactly he starts and where he ends. Okay, why did they come to the grandparents come to Britain in the first place or to United States? because of war, because the countries were colonized and they wanted to get either a better economic situation or fleeing political strife in another land that was started by Britain and those other people in the first place. So it's like, you know, it's like what Musa said, don't say you favored my people because, you know, you did me no favors because you took me in. You took me in because you was killing my people. And that put my mother in the position to put me in the in the, the stream, which made me come out. So you get my point? You started this situation. You're the cause of that situation. And now you're telling me that you're doing me a favor? No, everything's in the Quran right there. It shows that's not the way it goes. You, you get my point? So now we, when the Britain or these other people say, we're doing you a favor, look how we're doing. No, you cause strife in my land which caused the, 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 the fleeing the refugee status. And then you took me in and we made your country. We worked your lands, you know, and that particular thing. So, you know, this again, we have to go back so that we can articulate the realities that we live under and not be tricked by the, the, the sahira, the, the, the magicians and their, their, their slick tongues, you know, and the things that they say and how they reword the, the, the realities to make people understand things that are backwards. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, just to let the brothers know, inshallah, for the people watching it live in the UK, um, Salat al-Maghrib is going to be the next um, 15, 10, 15 minutes, inshallah. So this, this, take... is on, this is on the Roots conversation in, in on YouTube, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right, inshallah. That's okay. Right. Um, so... We'll just continue from about a minute or two minutes, inshallah, and then we'll take oh. a break for Maghrib um, for about five, ten minutes, inshallah ta'ala, and then we'll continue around about um, 7.40, inshallah. 
um, for those listening. So we're just going to carry. Well, I have a few questions, Sheikhuna. So, hello, problem. I'm listening. So when it comes to, um, we've kind of delved into all the topics all in one go. Uh, well, not hmm. all in one go, but it's like it's just been like uh, in in a range yeah. of different places. So, um, I appreciate all of our viewers that have been watching so far and posting questions as well. May Allah bless all of you. Um, you know, it's wonderful to have these to have these you know reformist sort of discussions. Um, um, so yeah, I have a few questions with regards to so the parenting aspect. So specifically schooling. So I I acknowledge already this is going to be a big question. So perhaps you could I don't know how we're going to work. You're going to get around this, but you know homeschooling and actual state schools um, or private schools. I mean, how do we nurture our child with the correct tarbiyah? And 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 when we send them to schools or if we were to send them to schools, how do we ensure that they they can keep their faith and, and uh, in, in good life. I mean, Allah doesn't mention children in the Quran except that He mentions them as a gift. Wahab. It's a gift that Allah has given you. So we should appreciate this gift that Allah has given us, these children. And we it is an amana, a trust under us that uh, we have to uh, care for their education. Um, I'm sorry. Allah tells us, Allah's Messenger وسلم, he mentions the parents as a ra'i, as a shepherd. And the shepherd has to make sure the sheep and the goats get where they're going and back. If the sheep jump off the cliff, it's not the sheep's fault. It's the shepherd's fault. If the wolf gets to the sheep and the shepherd was sleeping, he's supposed to protect those animals. Okay? Children are the same way. We're supposed to protect them from the environment that we raise them in. So we bring those children to the West or raise them in the West then or anywhere, even if it's not in the West. We have to guarantee and protect them from the wolves, the wild dogs, put them in the mahavara at nighttime. And too many times we just rely upon the environment to raise our children. And this is incorrect. Too many times the parents are so self-centered on what they want to do, what, you know, in their life, that they belittle or mitigate the rights of the children. Okay. And so, you know, what we have to do now is hold ourselves responsible for our children's education and not hold the school responsible. We think we can pay for everything. If I pay big money, then I paid the school. It's their job. No, it's still your job. Okay? And instead of paying money, pay with time. Spend that time, that quality time, educating your children. Now, you may have to hire a tutor. And I'm talking about homeschooling now because I don't have much uh, credence in Islamic schools or Muslim schools anymore. I taught at Muslim schools for many years. And they are understaffed with underqualified people. Majority of the people who teach at the Islamic schools are usually women who have a lot of time on their hands, but no education in, edu in education. Not saying they don't have any education, but I'm saying in education as educators. You know, teaching is a skill, not just because I have a degree in a particular subject, now I am, am, am qualified to teach that thing. There are rules and learn, uh, learned activities for teaching. And the Islamic schools don't provide that quality of education in general. We're just housing our children away from the kufar, which is a good thing to do. 
but it hinders their education. And then there's a lot of nepotism going along in those arenas and, and that type of thing, who has money. Now we're looking at each other like the Joneses and, and this rank structure is begun. And that, that doesn't really benefit much, but home education does benefit, okay? And that's what the parents need to look at. What is it that you need your child, that you want your child to know? And then you begin with that end in mind. And if you cannot, if we can say it's freezing up, can you guys see me good? I can't hear you. Uh, unmuted, I, sorry about that. Yeah, we can hear you good. It's all fine, inshallah. It's okay. just sometimes your video is freezing a little bit, but the, your, your sound's coming out perfectly fine. Okay. So now if we can, alhamdulillah, rabbil alameen, if we can see now that we cannot control the education that the public school gives us, and we don't like the things that are given, but we're still forced to send our children, then what freedoms are you getting in the, in the West? What freedoms... Are you getting in Britain and the United States and Germany and France if you cannot teach your child what you want and refuse to teach your child what you don't want? You know, this is the schizophrenia we have there. Okay. So I believe that we should take our child out of these schools. They only, if you look at the history of public schools, that goes back to the Native Americans in the United States when the Cherokee Nation was captured and put on reservations, the Cherokee people began to teach their own children in a public education setting. When the government noticed how good that was going, they took over it. And what they do, they implemented uniforms, they cut their cues, they made them dress a certain way, and they indoctrinated them, and they made it across the board for people to have to come in this way so that after a while, they were no good riders, they were no good hunters, they were now in this picture of this domesticated man and this ruined woman. Okay, and so these schools are giving our children the desires to be something that we that don't help our families. Okay, that are not helpful for our families. What do you want your child to be when he grows up? You want your child to marry someone who's a Hafiz Quran, a woman that knows how to cook and keep house. But if she grows up and says, I don't need you, Jack, I'm a feminist. Okay, and I believe that we're equal. Well, you don't you think go get your own wife then. Right. She can go, you know, and some of them do. And they think this is OK. But you want a wife that can do the job. And she wants a husband that can do the job and play the role of the husband and wife. But we don't even our children don't even know what the role of the husband and wife is to the most part these days, because they haven't learned it in fifth in the chapters dealing with the family laws. So we don't we wait too late to educate our children. And my concept is to take the children back. Take them out of those schools, refuse, and then you will notice that you're not so free, okay? If you can't take your child out of the school and do what you want to do, then that means that you're not free to do what you want to do, and you need to reevaluate the relationship you have with that person, meaning that society that you live in, okay? Same thing we say, I say to people who, who have all their money wrapped up in the bank, right? It's like giving your money to the, to the neighborhood bully, and then hoping he's in a good mood when you want your money back. That's how they're treating your child, too. We're going to educate your child. Smile. And then you say, well, I don't want to educate. You You don't want your, the education you're giving me. Okay. You better have a, you know, like it's their child. You better not take him out of school. Where was he? And it's my child. Or is he? You know, who has the right over the child? Me or you? That's why I'm saying we need to reevaluate before your child is taken away from you physically.
not just mentally. if it's okay, we're just going to take a short break for Maghrib for those who are in the UK. Um, we're back in about nine minutes or, yeah, about nine minutes at um, 40, 10, 22, 8, inshallah ta'ala. Hayakum Allah, alayfadhka. Assalamualaikum. So I'll do, Shaykh, and I'll just put it on mute for now. No problem. And, uh, yeah. Assalamualaikum. Alaykum salam.
السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وعليكم السلام ورحمة الله وبركاته Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim uh, Welcome back to the episode For those of you that are tuning in uh, This is um, with Sheikh Abu Toba Mukhlis um, And we've been discussing a range of topics regarding parenting uh, Islamic education and reform And uh, anything else in between um, So inshallah ta'ala Shaykhuna um, We just had a Maghrib break for those that are wondering what happened um, So Shaykhuna I have a question with regards to um, What I mentioned in terms of schooling so, in the UK, for example, I, I know, I've noticed that a lot of Muslim parents that are living here, of course, they're not living abroad, or uh, what they're doing is they're, they're creating homeschooling systems where they can educate their own children because they find that schooling itself, the amount of hours that they put in to take their children to school uh, and the school themselves underperforming in certain things, this is given have given them incentive to raise up their own children. Have you have you had any? Inclination towards that as well, homeschooling. If you have, inshallah, please let us know. Alhamdulillah, we have been homeschooling. Like I said, I have 18 children, and we've homeschooled 18 of those children. <laughs> and we're still currently homeschooling children. The laws in the United States allow a parent with a college degree to give a high school diploma that is as legal as the school, public school's high school diploma, okay? And this varies, some of these rules vary slightly from state to state, but it, it does allow you to educate your children. So what we did is my, my program goes like this. They spend the first few years of the child's life, as soon as the child is able to read, shows interest in reading, we give them newspapers and things they can tear apart because their hands are not strong enough to read them. So as they see everybody, because children mimic behavior. And then they start to look through those and they pretend like they're reading until they can read. Then we get them a teacher. And usually by the time they're four years old, they're reading and they're starting to learn how to read and this type of thing. And we immediately get them into the Quran and to uh, what I call first grade fiqh and adab, so that these long-term memories would be on those things. We don't teach them anything else. I wrote a, a poem. It's uh, called the, the, you know, the world inclusive science rhyme. So we teach them everything ourselves. Then when the child finishes Quran, let's say he or she is, let's say 10 years old or 12 years old, we spend maybe two years teaching them everything they have taught, they was, would have taught you from first grade to 12th grade. It doesn't take 12 years to teach the entire body of science, to go through the reading materials, to get reading comprehension in the English language, you know, or French or whatever language you decide that your child needs to learn from, from your particular uh, country. And we teach them, well, basically reading, math, and science. Then once we're finished educating them, now we expose them to what the school system has says that they're going to have on their exam. And we train them for that exam. Usually by the time the child is 15 or 16 years old, they have completed the Quran and completed the entire education system that they have to do. And they're able to normally be four or 16, they're able to now segue into the university setting, if that's what you want for your child or your child, you know, wants something else, you know, some other type of, of an internship or, or teaching 
that you want for that child. I do not believe that we should take our children, and I have not done it, where we take our child and send that child to school 12 years, eight hours a day, and that child is being taught by people who do not have their best interests in mind and do not believe in the things that they believe in or telling them they're inferior. I do not believe that that is the proper way to educate a child and and expect that that child will be a, a Muslim at the end of the day, okay? And we haven't seen that successfully. You know, we, what we've seen is that when you do that to the child, next thing you know, the child tells you that you're crazy and that you're an extremist and that you're, you know, old fashioned and that they want to do the things that they want to do. And I find that that even though this does cost sometimes, like when, one of my children, it was, we had a difficult time teaching that child how to read. And so what we did is we hired a tutor to come in and it, there are expenses tied. Just because you homeschool does not mean it's not going to cost you, but any school costs you. It's cheaper this way. When I say cheaper, it's less expensive this way. Now, some people say, but what about the socializing aspect of the children's education? All the time in homeschool, they they seem to say the socializing aspects. Well, if you do it correctly, the child should always be interacting with other children by taking and sending the child outside to go play. Also taking the child to the public library where they have these different programs. We're talking, of course, prior to COVID. Also taking the child to the masjid we're interacting with the other children there. Now, during this COVID, they've tried, tried to shut down all the public areas where the people would interact and learn these things. So you have to rely more on parent and close relatives intervention. And from that, I take my parents as an example. And what they made us do was they made us read aloud, okay? Read and do presentations to the rest of the people in the family. This will take away that 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 area of timidity because timidity is haram. I'm sorry, it's haram. It's not the same thing as being shy. Okay, shy. We should be shy. This is a a characteristic of humility, and it's a sign of Islam. But timidity is like cowardice, the inability to act when called upon to present out of fear of the unknown end. No, this is not allowed. It's different from being shy, having some reserve about yourself. But when called upon, the prophet was the bravest in the middle of the fight. Okay? But outside of that, he was like a shy virgin girl in her room. So there's a difference between being shy and timidity. And the parents have to educate themselves in this regard. And the, the, we, as an educator, we learn that it's never the child. It's never the student. It's either the institution. It's either the teacher's or it's the parents, but it's never the child. The child is just a victim of those three circumstances. So homeschooling in that way is how we I go about it. I hope that answers your inquiry. Yeah, it just seemed to me that uh, the, the amount of time you send your children, if you would send them to school, um, which is over eight hours, there are, of course, there is a social life there, but um, sometimes you can teach your children the same curriculum uh, at a much faster pace, perhaps. So even the things that they are competing with, you could possibly do that even better. Of course, but I don't think that you should teach them the same curriculum. One of the problems that, that see, you have to understand the insidious nature of kufr. One of the main ways they are attacking our children, okay, first we have to talk about this. Look, what does Islam do? Islam has come to preserve and protect 
to prioritize and always respect my dean, my mind, my wealth, my honor, my lineage, myself. So what the school does, it attacks the mind of the child, okay? How does it do that? It attacks them through reading. If you look at the reading materials that they give the children these days, they are needling in, in subtle ways, the ideas of kuf. So you need to check their reading materials constantly to make sure that the things that you're giving your child to read are not harmful for that child's mind and their mentality. And that's why I say, no, do not use the same curriculum. Understand the objectives of learning. You want to teach the child what is correct. And so that means the teacher themselves, the parent, and homeschooling works a whole lot easier. Okay, why? Because the child is automatically, you know, from the qadr of Allah, keyed into taking everything from his mother. Whatever his mother says or her mother says is gold. They automatically, you know, absorb that. So the learning process is faster just on that. They have to get to know the teacher. Right. They have to learn to trust the teacher. And sometimes there's some 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 roughness in there. The mother being the ummah, the, 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 the whole nation in raising this nation. Now she has all types of time on her hand. She can take every experience in the home and turning it into a learning lesson right there. Does that make sense? So that's why more time is spent educating and less time is is spent on the, the commute to school. The dad, the getting ready, the pushing the children out. I was always amazed when I lived in the United States that how early the children get up and get on the bus stop, but they won't get up for fudger. Showing is not an issue of not understanding the importance of getting up early because they're out there at fudger time. We're coming back from the masjid. They're already dressed and outside standing and waiting for the bus and it's still dark out. So they understand that if it was important, they would get up and do it. It's just the salah is not important. And the Muslim children are out there too. So then we're teaching them by sending them that the salah is not as important as you go into this school. We don't send them to the Juma on Friday because they're at school. So then salah and Juma is not important. So if men right? Whoever does something as a child, they're going to do it as an adult. They're never going to get the feeling of I have to go to Juma if they didn't attend Juma as a child. Is get my point? Because the job or this is more important. So homeschooling brings to the table a whole different level of intense learning. Okay, you, you can teach about tahara. You can teach about the science of brushing the teeth and those things like that. You can teach all types of, of, of affairs to the, the child just through the interacting with the parent. You can teach about instructions through having the child help with the cooking, right? And this becomes nutritious classes. Everything the parent does at home becomes a lesson in science, reading, or math, okay? And that's not done in the school environment. And you, like, I, like you said, you know, uh, they're not sent away to spend eight hours someplace else. So and you're saying get, that you're, you confuse it all together and it will come in as a, as a holistic package of knowledge. Because you put things in perspective, right? Whereas if you you go to school, it's like there's one subject, there's one sub, there's one subject, and there's no like there's no like priority list. Whereas for you, you can make sure that Islam is a priority in the curriculum, and even when you discuss things like history, I presume obviously Islamic history will be 
you know, uh, something that we discussed. Uh, so definitely, I think I can see what you're trying to say, mashallah. I think that's you know, that's very and, nice. And not, not only that, the, the like what you said is that it's immediate, immediately applicable. Okay. Did we did we freeze? No, no, we can hear you. It's immediately applicable, right? Yeah, it's immediately applicable, and they, they can see it. Like I had a problem personally with math when I was going to school. I did not understand what the, the purpose of some of these uh, ma this math was. But when I, I I went to Africa and I had to learn it for zakah and I had to learn it for you know these particular aspects of it in, in mirath. I said, okay, I get it now. I get algebra now. I understand how we can use this in an applicable manner, you know. But so when the child is dealing with, you know, these particular sciences in a, uh, here you go. When a child is dealing with these particular sciences in a day-to-day, -day, hey, now I'm seeing measurements, right? I'm learning fractions and I'm doing it in the house while I'm cooking and making a cake. The child's going to enjoy that. Okay, he's going to remember, hey, every time we cook, we're using fractions, immediate application. Okay, I when you teach them, when I taught the children about algorithms, you know, I, I taught them that this was a Muslim man. Okay, so and this is oh, really, Al Jabbar. We tell them, oh man, this is this is a Muslim. Wow, now they're you know, understanding Kemawiya from Kem measurement, how much, you know, and so. When you start teaching them and seeing that when you go through medical science, you see almost all of the medical instruments and everything come from Muslims and how much came from Andalusia. So when you teach these particular things to the children in this fashion, they have a sense of presence there. And that's voided out in the schools. OK. And in fact, in my 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 science book, I write everything's a battle. You know, everything we study is a battlefield. Of wars fought between the Muslims and the disbelieving hordes. Religion, cultures, times, and place have been wiped out with little trace. Even in a science book, we're fighting battles. Take a look. No Timbuktu, no Andalus, no Indo-Asian contributes. All scientists are European and nothing's mentioned from Adin to guide us on Islamic truths. No uh, Athar or Quranic proofs. So Abu Chauba wrote this time, a world-inclusive science rhyme. You get my point? So when we, we teach that, now the child starts to see his place in there. But you tell him to school, he's going to come back and tell you, hickory dickory dock. The, something ran up the clock. What, does, what benefit is that? How does that help him what he memorized? But if you teach them, I, I gave my word with heart and head to praise Allah till I drop dead. Send blessings on the prophet and respect the scholars each jihad. All Muslimin must study and pray to fight shaitan in every way. Expect mistakes along the way. Repent the fight another day. Now he has something in his head he can use. He can always remember what it is that he is all about. So the education has to fit the objective in the end. As they say, begin with the end in mind. What does the product that you're looking to present to to produce what does that look like and if that's what you want in it you got to start putting in it now so that it can grow and homeschool education does that sending them off to the school where you get this cookie cutter education that someone else can 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 wheedle, you know needle in things that you don't know 
you, 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 you're, you're hurting yourself and you're hurting your child. And Allah knows best. Barakulafikum, um, I think we've covered everything. Um, but actually, I was going to ask you more about this last point, actually, All right. in regards to poems, poems and raps. Now, obviously, I've, I've heard your podcast before and, and you've talked about this. You introduced this as a concept because it helps people memorize things. Uh, also, we need that in our discourse because we, we use that in our daily life anyway in this culture. So it's good to have this, um, you know, sort of method of doing it. But could you elaborate how you do that and how you incorporate that with your children, inshallah? Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. I do not believe that poetry in and of itself should be uh, used, but educated people should write poems that and educated people have written poems did you know that every science in islam has been written into a poem yeah. every science in islam the problem is that these poems are or the challenge that we face nowadays is that all most of these poems are been written in arabic and our children are not fluent enough and even ourselves are not fluent enough in general in arabic for us to embody those, understand them, and pass them on. So what I did is I took, you know, the what I learned and I made them into poems that would be in English but use Arabic terminology to enable the student, the child, the new Muslim or the, the person who's rejuvenating their Islamic, uh, you know, identity so they could memorize these things and they could be part of their long-term memory. The easy thing about the rhyme is that you know when something's missing because it's a rhyme, okay? And also what it does, it allows and enables the student to know what to do. Okay, what do I do next? Say, Bismillah and wash my hands once or twice or three times then. Wash my mouth and blow my nose. I'll wash my face, that's how it goes. I'll wash my arms until they bend. Then wipe my head and back again. Wash my ears inside and out. Go up and down till there's no doubt. Then make sure that I wash my feet with ankles washed. Will do is complete. Now a child, I've seen children, five years old, four years old, say, let's spend and wash my hands once or twice or three. It's cute, but it's also educational. Does that make sense? So we, we need to get back to what will benefit us and to use our creative was not making a rhyme that says Islam is great and that's the thing and we have it. No, we're not just talking about rhetoric here. We're talking about didactic education. Okay? I wake up and I have to pray to Sunan to start the day. Before the sunrise, Fajr is played. Afterwards, Duha is claimed. Pray Istikhara on the spot. Before I work those plans, I plot. And when the sun gets past midday, I'll offer Dhur right away. Or Juma, but that's once a week, like Eid Salah, short and sweet. I hadn't, it hadn't rained for weeks and weeks. Pray this this God, now my roof leaks. And Asr, I'll be calling it teen, say both my dunya and my deen. I tried to fix that leaky roof, the sun eclipse. I prayed Kusuf. Mujahideen marked by my house. In battle, pray Salatul Khawf. Pray Tauba, one replied and said, when bad deeds hurt your heart and head. Pray Maghrib and stay wide awake so Juma's not missed. By mistake, then stand at night. With Richard and you'll never fail. Our janazah will be much too late to offer prayers I didn't make. So that's all 17 salah in the deen. That helps a child. You put it in a day, right? So that he can see what he's supposed to do. I wake up and I have to pray. Two rakah, two sunan. 
to start the day. Before the sunrise projects pray. You get my point? So we need to, you know, put our efforts into real education, something that can is palatable, that they can take. You, you get my point? They're going to the bathroom. Uh-oh, better not rush in. Better think about Allah because there might be some jinn. Say, I seek refuge in Allah from the dirty, nasty jinn. These little ditties replace that nonsensical, um, you know, nursery rhymes that have no benefit for our child's, our child's mentality. London Bridge is falling down. So what? What does that have to do with me? How does that help my child? And once we research it, we realize they're talking about a political action that took place hundreds of years ago. So what? It's not important or imperative to my child's life. Why does he have to learn that? But rather, I would rather my son know that the Farad of Salah. What are the Farad of Salah? Oh, you Muslim who swear you're the epitome of the Islam, right? The knee is made before Salah. Clear in my head, made in my, my heart. Takbiratun in all's haram, and we must try our best qiyam. Say alhamdulillah, and then ruku, then rise again. We have to do twice on my face and sit between tashahad comes before taslim. With i'tidal and itma'in, don't forget the right tartib. If we forget one fard, that's all. The whole salah don't count no more. Now the child knows all the fard of salah. In a little rhyme. That's meaningful. You get my point? That's educational. But we spend too much time trying to prove our worth and our identity on someone else's scale. And that is not correct. That is beneath the Islamic honor and dignity. Remember, Islam has come to preserve and protect, prioritize, prioritize and always respect my deen, my mind, my wealth, my honor, my lineage, myself. And it does that in multiple ways. And so we have to take our children back to that hustle, that foundation. So my deen is preserved, shirk is haram. And what? Tawheed is there. My mind, so all things that would harm and injure my mind, smoking and drugs is haram. But eating healthy food, reading Quran, these things are halal. My deen, my mind, my wealth, all deceptive practices and riba are haram. But rib and sadaqah. Is there? Okay? My DMI, my wealth, my honor. Here is, I, I get the choice to marry who I want, and they have the choice to marry who they want. My honor, all things, my, 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 uh, my, you can't backbite me, you can't kill me. My honor is preserved. My lineage, marriage, you get my point? Is there, but zina is not allowed. Myself, if I can't kill me, I can't kill no one else. So my blood is haram as well. Islam allows these things. But our people, our Muslims, we're not teaching this anymore. We don't know it as a common knowledge and we have lost the ability to have a visa of passing it around. So what I have done is I have recreated a visa based on the things that we have in the Arabic text and put it in the English text, the language we speak in, but under the terms of the Islamic terms that we have so that we can now use this as a means of rejuvenating and inspiring ourselves to be better Muslims and to come back to a common understanding with regards to what our goals are, what our expectations are, and where, and you know, to keep us on the straight and narrow and what we're supposed to be about and do. Does that make sense? This is my, my stance with poems. I don't think just poems in and of themselves, just saying yeah. anything out your mouth, 
I'm big, I'm bad, I'm big back, Hank, I'm everywhere. No, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we gathered that, alhamdulillah. I was going to say that, um, where can we find these poems uh, if we would like to educate our children? Or... Two, baby. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you have to, you know, what we do is, I guess we have Timbuktu University, you contact me, and yeah. I, I young people like yourself to help me to, to get them out to different people. But w these are all the poems that we have at Timbuktu Seminary. And we make them for everybody who wants to um, get those things, you know? Mashallah, mashallah. Um, so yeah, I think inshallah, if that's okay, we can move towards the questions now, inshallah. I'd like to thank all of oh. our viewers so far that have oh. uh, been watching and tuning in. We really appreciate that. May Allah reward every single one. Mashallah. Uh, because the it says here the timer says here one hour fifty five, and if you if you factor in maghrib it's about ten minutes. So one hour forty five so far. Alhamdulillah. So I just want to thank all the viewers. May Allah reward you all for attending, and I pray that you've all benefited. So questions, inshallah. Let's go. Let's go. Let's let me have a look. Inshallah. Bismillah. Uh, Okay, Muhammad Abdul Abdi Aziz um, says, "What advice would you give with uh, with the Sheikh have have about um, relationships and sexual education and exposure to different beliefs, like in our in, in our education system, um, if they're unable to do homeschooling? So the condition is that they don't have the option or the possibility to do homeschooling. So they have to send their kids to school where they're exposed to um, related relationships, uh, which is problematic in some ways. How would the what advice would you give Sheikh for that?" Okay, let me let me read this again. What advice would the Sheikh ha, uh, have about RSE? What is RSE? Relationship and sexual education. So like stuff like okay, what um, okay homosexuality and I get stuff. it now. Okay, so what I what I suggest to people to do is first and foremost do not believe that your child is so gentile that they can't hear what you're talking about. Okay. The child is going to be, you know, you have to prepare your child for the environment that they live in. If you know your child is going to be exposed to this issue of relationship and sexual education and atheism, then you should expose them first. You should be the one since you know what you want to put and, and seed into this child and let him understand that the people that he's going to don't have his best interests in mind. But then pops up a, a dilemma. If, if I'm a child, say, hold on, if you're telling me these people, I shouldn't trust them, then why are you sending me to these people? Okay? That becomes the issue. What do you mean you can't do anything else? So maybe you can't homeschool, but you can send them someplace else that's not going to do that to the child. Again, we have to reevaluate what we're saying through our actions. If you know that child is going to go to a place and they're going to teach, they're going to force that on you. What does that say about your freedom? That you can't stop your child? You can't protect your child from this partic these particular, um, not, um, you can't protect your child from these influences at the school? Then what say do you have? I say, be real with your situation. Exposing, and we've dealt with this here in the United States. We dealt with this as Africans in the United States. We had to deal with having to go to school and be afraid in the school system. 
okay? And our parents would sell us, and well, we didn't have any choice. We gotta send you to the school. This is what the school's gonna do. We would say, go to school and go to sleep. That's what we tell you. If you look at the old 70s stuff, you know, I'm a 60s baby. Go to school and don't participate. But if you're scared, you know, if you're not going to do that level, if you, you can't say, I don't like it, and you're not willing to do anything about it, okay? That's the thing about it. You can't have it both ways. I don't want to rock the boat, but I don't want to participate. Allah has drafted you in his army, okay? By making you Muslim. And he told you the shaitan is your enemy, and you have to take him as your enemy. You have to fight kufr. However, you have to do it. And I believe that if you, you know, you speak to your child or you get your child out of that school and you find Allah will make a way. Tawakkal Allah. Allah says, Allah. If you have, you know, made a decision, then go ahead and trust Allah. Allah will make a way for you. May Allah make that easy for the brothers, inshallah. It seems like that's the only question we have. Um, so I'm just going to remind the brothers um, if they've got any more questions, quickly send them through, inshallah. Um, but yeah, Barakallah Fikum Shaykhana for um, devoting your time to this podcast. I appreciate that you've taken. Barakallah Mashallah, you've, actually, you've got lots of kids that you're looking after, Mashallah. So I appreciate that you've. I have any kids. Children. Children, Mashallah. There's a difference between. I don't believe that you. Allah says in the Quran, Bitsalism al Kufri ba'da liman. It is evil to call somebody after they become Muslim by an evil name. I noticed this this trend of calling children kids has been growing it, the last. Where does it stem from? Is it... it stems from okay, this word kid. Yeah. We know that a, a goat, a baby goat, is called a kid. But why are children called kids? If you look at the nature of the goats, the goats, mm. the baby goats, the kids, they jump up on things, they chew things up. They are very mischievous and always getting into something. Children were started to be called kids, street kids. Children who are mischievous in the street, knock over someone's mailbox, break somebody's window, pull the antenna off the car, be rowdy. And they said, look at those street kids. And in the United States, when a child was a minor or a, a, a young person was a minor, but they were a criminal, they put the word kid after his name, like Billy the Kid. When he was mm -hmm. wanted, Billy the Kid. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So this was indicative that this child, though being a minor, he was a criminal, okay? So, and these children, they were row rousers, they were mischievous, so they're street kids, not children, mm -hmm. street kids. So Islam teaches us not to refer to our children in these, these types of names, okay? Mm -hmm. But we should call them what they are, children. And if we mm -hmm. call them by that honorable name, children, that gives a different connotation when you, when you do that. But some of us think, oh, it's just, it's no big deal. What are you talking? Most of the people who are saying this are mostly people from the immigrant community. Mm. You know, who think that this is, I'm learning good English, I'm going to say this, it's fine. No, it's not fine. We need to learn what the word means in its origin. 20 years ago, when I was in New York, uh, a teacher, we took the New York State teachers or city teachers, we took an oath never to call our children kids because then they're going to act as what you call them. Okay? So it's a harmful word, and Allah tells us, "Bitsalismul kufri man." What an evil name, name of kaf kufr. You call a child after or a person after they come to Islam. So please reevaluate calling our children kids and call them children. Come here, child. Where are my children, wife? You know this type of term is different. I'm 
exaggerating the term. I just want to remind the, the brother who sent this question in that if you look at the podcast um, during the start, we did dis- uh, Sheikh did discuss his um, living in Turkey. He, so he discussed the benefits. The Can the Sheikh comment on the living on living in a country like Turkey? I'll say this. I'll say this. But one thing I like about you know I, I don't know if people know, but I was tortured when I was in the United States. You know, for uh, three years actually. Or they, they, they said treatment that amounted to torture because I wasn't convicted of any crime. So, and legally, you can't be tortured unless you're convicted of a crime. So they said it's torture, um, treatment that amounted to torture. And uh, when you have that type of experience, you want to get away from that place. This is one of the reasons people make hijrah. When you're looking for a place to make hijrah, you have to look at where can I go and be safe and not have to worry about that. And, and Turkey has. A concept of adala, justice. Look how many Syrian refugees are here, millions. Okay. Look how many of the Rohingya people have been accepted here. How many different people, even the Kurdish people, are here, and from different Greek people in Cyprus and different places around the world that have come here seeking asylum, seeking to start their and live their lives as Muslims and not be harmed by the, those other places. So, you know, Turkey has the, the ability to do that. Like I said, you, you have to understand that uh, any, any action that you go forward to, there's going to be reactions to that. And if you're willing to make that forward step, then you should go ahead and do it. Uh, Turkey is a modern country. Uh, it has the quality of life here to me is much better than it is in the United States. But one of the things about hijrah people need to understand is that when you make that step, you automatically start to realize uh, why there's such a great reward for hijrah. Because you're away from the things that you're accustomed to, that you've grown accustomed to. You're away from a support group here and you have to rebuild that, uh, that, that, that support group over again. Does that make sense? And may Allah make it easy for us to, uh, what do you call it? Alhamdulillah. I just got a correction here by Abu Bakr. He said, Bit Fusuk. I'm sorry. Badly, man. I made a mistake. I said, Kufr. And it's Fusuk. Jazakallah khayya, Abu Bakr. May Allah bless you. Fusuk, which is yani, uh, sinful, you know, open sinful. Jazakallah khayya for, for, for uh, reminding me, you know, Zalat al you know, the, the, we make mistakes and we forget. So Jazakallah khayya, Wastaghfirullah. You know, alhamdulillah. So I think that people who are going to make the, the, the attempt to come to Turkey should, again, number one, learn uh, the language. You can do that very easily uh, where you're at. Um, learn the history. Understand the political situation. Don't come here pushing your weight around. Know that you're in a place that if there's a misunderstanding, normally you're the one that's misunderstanding because, you, you know, you're the new person in the environment. And so you may not know what the, 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 the actual what's going on there. Sometimes we come and we are very assumptuous and we want and we want and we demand. Don't come to a country that you're trying to, to live and start again fresh and poke holes in the people. OK, look at other people say, look what he's doing. Look at, no, obviously you came here because it's better than and you imagined it to be at least to be better than where you were at. If you have problems with the place, don't come. You know what? I'm, I'm not saying that, per, that, that, that Turkey is the most perfect place in the world, 
No, what I am saying is that it does afford you the ability for you to practice your Islam. It makes the transition to residency clear, where in some places it's not clear. Okay, there are, if you have skills, you can easily get, find work here. And if you work online, you can easily do that here because the internet is, you know, is all over the place in the country. As you see right now, you know, we're here online. So there are there some negatives? Yes, the negatives, people smoke, okay? Uh, that's a very big negative because you walk on the street and there's a lot of uh, smoke pollution out there. Uh, the other negative is that, like I said, you're gonna be, unless you move to a community, and this is the other thing, a lot of times we make hijr by ourselves. Hijr should be made to a community where you're right here. I'm in Bursa right now. And we all live within literally two minutes, three minutes walk of each other. When Whenever we walk outside the house, we're bumping into each other. It's not planned bumping into each other. And we like that. We enjoy that. Okay. And of course, we have to remember being here that we have to respect the people. That's the main thing. Because any one mistake could get us all thrown out the country because they don't want problematic people, right? They want people who are gonna come and bring something to the table. They want people that's gonna come and take away from the, the peace here, okay? So there are a lot of aspects to making that decision. Like I said, Turkey is not the only place in the world. Consider other places as well, you know, and there, there are a host of other countries that you can look at and may Allah make it easy. I think we'll have to wrap up on that if that's okay. I'd just like to thank you again, Sheikhona. May Allah accept it from you. Uh, and may Allah bless all of our attendees. Just a like, like reminder for our listeners to do um, do join us on our pl- platforms that we do have Apple Podcasts, iTunes, sorry, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, we have a range of platforms where you can <clears throat> catch um, this episode and the previous episodes before that as well, inshallah. Um, that's okay, inshallah. Uh, sorry? Come check us out at Timbuktu Seminary. Yes, uh, Sheikhana is a is the founder or co-founder of Timbuktu Seminary, and mashallah, some of his poems are available um, through that website as well. Inshallah. Subhanahu wa bihamdik wa nashadu illa ilaha illa ant wa nastaqiru wa tuqilayk wa nasr inna insana fi khusr inna lidina amanu wa amna salihat wa tuwasab alhaqi wa tuwasab sabr. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wajazakum alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.